Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today, especially on such short notice. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as board chair of Israel Policy Forum. I want to welcome those of you who are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today and welcome back our returning viewers. We are all deeply troubled by the events unfolding in Israel and Gaza and the West Bank. As we affirmed in our statement on Sunday, every civilian casualty, whether Israeli or Palestinian, is one too many. And the longer that fighting between the two sides continues, the greater the likelihood that there will be additional civilian casualties. We call for President Biden and Secretary Blinken to take the lead in formulating a ceasefire agreement and to continue to play an active role in speaking to all relevant parties and leaders. It is clear that the events of the past week and a half demonstrate not only the security challenges that Israel faces, but also the need to move toward a two-state outcome that will ensure Israel's security and Palestinian self-determination. In this environment, Israel Policy Forum remains committed to providing timely programming such as today's webinar. And we have a number of resources for all of you to access on the current crisis. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our donors. I want to thank our current and hopefully our future supporters on today's call. In this critical moment, I encourage you to make your first gift or renew your support by visiting our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. I also encourage you to explore Israel Policy Forum's resources on the unfolding Israeli-Palestinian crisis, which can be found online at ipf.li forward slash Jerusalem Gaza, all lowercase. These include briefings and policy proposals for Gaza, an explainer on the situation in Jerusalem, and new episodes of our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Finally, I want to invite all of you to join Israel Policy Forum on Wednesday, June 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific for our community-wide virtual realistic reset program, which will bring together top policymakers and analysts together for a discussion on the most critical issues facing Israel and the Palestinians today and Israel Policy Forum's priorities. That event could not be more timely. And you can register and find more information online at ipf.li ipf forward slash 2 June. Now on to today's program. There's a lot for us to cover in the situation in Gaza, and we're fortunate to be joined by three of Israel Policy Forum's leading experts, Policy Advisor Shira Efron, Policy Director Michael Koplo, and Israel Fellow Nimrod Novik. As always, we encourage you to ask questions of our speakers which we plan to get to in the second half of our program today. Please type your questions in the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. Additionally, a recording of this broadcast will be published later on today as an episode of our Israel Policy Podcast, Israel Policy Pod Podcast, and published on our website, israelpolicyforum.org. With that, Shira, Michael, and Nimrod, thanks so much for joining us. Michael, could you begin by giving us a refresher? This conflict is not yet two weeks old, and yet we have seen rockets fired into Israel at a far greater rate than during previous exchanges between Israel, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad, and significant damage and casualties in Gaza. So please take us back and t talk about how this all started. Sure. Thanks, Susie. Um, and uh, particularly thanks to Shira and Nimrod who are not only joining us from uh, what is effectively a war zone, but uh, while it's Wednesday for, for me and for Susie, it's already Thursday. 
for uh, for Shira and Nimrod. Um, so, you know, the backdrop to this is, of course, um, events in in Jerusalem, uh, in East Jerusalem in particular, which um, are not the reason Hamas began firing rockets on Israel, but you know, certainly provided uh, a convenient excuse. Um, you know, we've uh, we've of course spoken about this on Israel Policy Forum webinars and, and podcasts before, uh, but. There was this issue of evictions in Sheikh Jarrah that had been building up. And uh, of course, there was going to be an Israeli Supreme Court hearing on these evictions uh, two Mondays ago uh, on Yom Yerushalayim. Um, And there were also events throughout Ramadan that had been increasing tensions in East Jerusalem, uh, starting with events on the Temple Mount, where um, the Israeli police decided to cut the loudspeakers to Al-Aqsa Mosque so that uh, they wouldn't, the call to prayer would not uh, conflict with the speech that President Ruby Rivlin was giving down by the Western Wall Plaza on Yom Hazikaron on Memorial Day. Uh, there was also tension around closing the uh, steps around Damascus Gate during Ramadan, which is normally a big gathering place for, uh, for Palestinians who are in East Jerusalem. There were issues of access to the Temple Mount, uh, people may recall, video of buses being stopped from northern Israel on their way to Jerusalem and and Palestinians. uh, And again, you know, when I say Palestinians, in this case, I'm talking about Israeli citizens who then had to get out uh, off the bus and were walking, uh, walking to Jerusalem from these buses that were stopped. Um, And then there were instances of the Israeli police on the Temple Mount, uh, who in response to Palestinians throwing stones, uh, responded with tear gas, and it's unclear whether the tear gas canisters were purposely fired into Al-Aqsa or if it was outside in the plaza and they made their way into Al-Aqsa. But, you know, all of this created lots of tension around Jerusalem. And uh, Hamas looked to this as an excuse and, uh, you know, looking to looking to sort of take advantage of the situation, take advantage of Palestinian authority weakness. There was obviously a lot of Palestinian discontent over canceled elections. Uh, and Hamas saw this as an opportunity to gain an upper hand on their rivals and as an opportunity to portray themselves as standing up for Jerusalem. And so uh, beginning uh, at this point, nine days ago, um, on, uh, on, on Monday, uh, I think it was Monday the 10th, uh, which again was during Ramadan and during and on Yom Yishalayim, Hamas started this by firing rockets at Jerusalem, um, issuing an ultimatum first that uh, unless Israel... Uh, left Sheikh Jarrah and removed all police from the Temple Mount. It was going to fire rockets. Obviously, Israel was not going to, to you know, do that in response to the Hamas ultimatum. And so the rocket started, and here we are uh, nine days later, uh, where we still have uh, rocket fire taking place, and obviously Israeli responses in Gaza. Um, and the United States is pushing for a ceasefire, but at the moment it's unclear whether we're going to have one in, in the next 24 or 48 hours or whether this is going to continue for longer. Susie, I think you're muted. <laughs> Sorry about that. Common Zoom mistake. Uh, Nimrod, there's a Palestinian political component here. What were Hamas's motives vis-a-vis Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority? How has the PA responded to the conflict? And what do things look like in the West Bank now? Thank you, Susie. Um, First, uh, if I may, just uh, just in case the Chira and I disappear, uh, it is because uh, Hamas has uh, threatened uh, to launch fire 
at Tel Aviv and the vicinity at uh, 12 midnight, which is 10 minutes ago, um, their precision is no comfort. Their lack of precision in time is no comfort. Um, uh, yeah, um, there's politics on all three fronts that play into this uh, situation. Um, uh, within Hamas, there is a tendency, given Hamas uh, religious, uh, extreme religious uh, stream affiliation and uh, and violent uh, strategy, there's a there's a tendency to look at it as a monolith. It is not. There are streams within within Hamas, and they come into play uh, as we speak. Um, over the past several years, indeed, since uh, 2014, the last round of violence, of major violence, uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, leader of Hamas in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, a tough guy uh, who served over 20 years in Israeli prison and learned us thoroughly, uh, didn't waste his time uh, playing cards. Um, uh, he he tried to steer Hamas in a different direction. Uh, not that he gave up on Hamas ambition, but he thought of an alternative strategy whereby uh, Hamas needed to gain international legitimacy, uh, admission into the PLO, the overall umbrella of the Palestinian organizations or uh, Palestinian diaspora and local uh, citizenry. Um, and from there, uh, with that as a platform, compete with Fatah over overall Palestinian leadership. Um, for that to happen, he has to suspend the armed struggle um, and go for a deal with Israel that involves also bringing uh, Fatah or the Palestinian Authority to run civil matters uh, in, in uh, Gaza. He mobilized Egyptian support for it and jointly they approached Israel, suggested that strategy, uh, and Israel refused. They kept trying for several years with that strategy. The head of the uh, military arm of Hamas, um, a, a local legend, uh, primarily because he survived several Israeli attempts to kill him, um, by the name of uh, Mohammed Def, um, was quite skeptical about this strategy. Uh, he's a tough guy. He believes in the military uh, in the armed struggle is the only way uh, to weaken Israel uh, and uh, regain and gain uh, control over Palestinian politics and from there try to jump uh, into the broader ambition. Um, nonetheless, he uh, gave uh, uh, Sinwar a rope, uh, gave him the backing of the military arm, and uh, Sinwar was running with his policy but failed to deliver the goods. Uh, no easing of conditions in Gaza, no improvement of life, no international uh, acceptance or, or legitimacy or PLO admittance. Um, we, we, know, we saw the results of it, of uh, Sinwar uh, losing favor in his opposition galvanizing a few, a few couple of months ago when he took him four rounds in order to, uh, re, uh, to win re-election uh, as a Gaza leader. Uh, that was political. What we're witnessing now is his failure militarily or security-wise when, uh, when uh, Mohammed Def, after years of silence, uh, suddenly showed up with a major statement of uh, 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 quite a chutzpahdik uh, ultimatum to Israel, um, basically sending a message to Sinwar, uh, I'm going to show you how it's done right. Uh, so internal Hamas dynamics played 
into what we are uh, witnessing. And when the wing that wanted to suspend the armed struggle lost, uh, we entered uh, the current uh, round. It is important, not just as an historical anecdote, but perhaps as a guide for future policies, uh, if others want to play inside uh, Hamas uh, politics, strengthen one arm at the expense of the other. On the West Bank, we have a very sad situation um, where uh, Abu Mazen is now described as totally detached from reality in a bubble, surrounded by uh, three very powerful, strong yes-men who reinforce uh, his passivity uh, and lack of uh, strategy. Uh, others in uh, Fatah um, are um, determined to try and steer Fatah in a, in, in, a, in a rejuvenated direction. And we're hoping that the elections uh, that were uh, scheduled for earlier in May um, would have uh, uh, created the opportunity for that. But uh, uh, with uh, Abu Mazen reaching the conclusion that his uh, list uh, was going to lose the elections, he postponed it. Uh, and what we have now is a situation whereby the situation uh, on Temple Mount and Jerusalem in general and the Gaza-Israel situation uh, have uh, uh, played into the loss of credibility of the PA, which was at a low point, as it were. Um, and youngsters are going to the street, there are demonstrations and so on, but the most important feature of it is a serious concern. We discussed it previously uh, on IPF uh, webinars, meetings, and, uh, and, and, and podcasts, uh, a grave concern from the Palestinian security leadership that their men in uniform, uh, are facing very serious peer pressure. Uh, they are perceived as uh, protecting the Israeli occupation rather than defending Al-Aqsa. Um, and they are beginning, there's already a, a trickle of people uh, not showing up for work. And we received warning from very serious senior uh, Palestinian security officials that if this goes on for a bit longer, uh, they might not only not show up to work, but show up in the demonstrations with their weapons. And Nimrod, I know this is something that you in particular have been warning about for a very long time. So it's it's not a new threat, but it sounds to me like it's a more serious and perhaps more real threat now than before. Uh, Shira, you have done research for the RAND Corporation on the severe humanitarian crisis in Gaza, which of course predates this current conflict. How has the fighting now impacted the humanitarian situation and what can policymakers do once the dust settles to sit, stabilize the situation for Gaza residents? Thank you, Susie. Um, um, Nimrod, I'm, I'm less concerned about Hamas firing because as you can see from my decor, I'm sitting in a safe room in Tel Aviv. Uh, it's safe, uh, it's safe uh, from rockets and it's also safe from, uh, from uh, uh, house noises or me making noise at home at, uh, after midnight. Uh, but uh, to your question, before I get to Gaza, I think um, it is important to mention, um, and it's not mentioned enough, I think, in the U.S., uh, or at least not in the outlets that I see, that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad have fired 
over 4,000 rockets and projectiles into Israel over uh, nine days, creating extreme, you know, relatively uh, severe damage. Uh, thank goodness there's Iron Dome, so Israel is protected, but it is creating damage, uh, damage to Israeli deterrence, uh, the risks that uh, Nimrod pointed out, the West Bank, um, and uh, of course, something that scares Israelis the most is, I think, inciting uh, unprecedented violence uh, inside the Green Line between Israelis, Jews and Palestinians of 48, which which is really the damage is so. So I, I, just before we get to Gaza, I want to say that this is taking a toll on Israelis also. And I think the damage will be the damage internal, right? Gaza, Israel knows how to deal with it militarily, but all the rest, no strategy at all. Um, when we're talking about this this uh, specific conflict, obviously it's very hard to assess the damage now. So I'm relying on estimations from people there on the ground, but the 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 the, the full magnitude of the destruction uh, will only be known when uh, there's a ceasefire. Uh, but what we know at the moment is that there's um, the number of casualties. It's 200, I, I, it was 213 earlier today, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure the number uh, jumped a little bit. Um, relatively high number of children and women. We're talking about 97 out of uh, 213, so very high numbers. 72,000 uh, displaced. Hundreds of buildings have been destroyed completely. Thousand more, I think six, over 6,000 buildings in addition have been destroyed partially. Those people have nowhere to go. Six hospitals have been hurt. 11 uh, health clinics, including the only clinic in Gaza that conducts PCR tests for COVID. You know, if, the, if we were doing this seminar 11 days ago, we would be talking about COVID in the West Bank and Gaza. So there's still COVID outbreak there. There are no vaccinations, very little, and the Sputnik ones. Um, uh, there's uh, anticipation of a spike in COVID cases after this is over. Uh, because there's no social distancing or anything under these conditions. Um, electricity formally is available for three to four hours a day on average, but in, in practice in many parts of this, the Gaza Strip, there's no electricity at all. Uh, water is unavailable. Drinking water is unavailable for close to a million people. For those that have running water, we're talking about very salty water. Uh, because the the, 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 the the groundwater is so salinated and the desal desalination plants don't work now because they don't have, uh, there's no power, right? Uh, sewage treatment facilities, are the main one in the northern uh, part of the strip and just uh, is not operational. It's been hurt. One of the feeder pipes has been damaged uh, by rocket fire. There's dispute, uh, whether it's Israel or Hamas, heard uh, 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 it, but it, it doesn't work, uh, which means that sewage is flowing to uh, overflowing uh, in the streets, the pools of Petlahia in the, the neighbor, uh, but also pouring straight into the Mediterranean raw sewage. I can tell you that when we looked at it, and the conditions are pretty similar, right? In 2018, there was no electricity, there was no fighting, but there was no power for political issues between the Palestinians themselves. Uh, we es estimated that the quantities of raw so sewage that is flowing into the Mediterranean and straight into Israeli beaches, Ashkelon and Ashdod, uh, was equivalent to 43 Olympic-sized swimming pools per day. So this is probably what we're dealing with. And this is something that, I mean, I think it's terrible for Gaza. <laughs> it's also terrible for Israel. Uh, it could uh, increase the risk. You know, it could affect a bit Israel's ability to uh, desal, plant, desal water in that area. 
uh, just because the water can be too polluted as happened in 2018. Uh, but also waterborne diseases, <laughs> you know, when you don't have uh, access to drinking water and you have sewage in the streets, immediately this, the risk spikes for uh, cholera, viral meningitis, uh, polio, thank goodness there's there are vaccinations, but, but, but it's real, 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 real risk. Um, when we're talking about, I mean, this is sort of the, the, the big picture. When we're talking about it, I'm not talking about all the other things, right? There's like less food now available. Of course, people unemployed. That's uh, the fishing season and the fishing zone is closed. So no one can go fishing, the, lo the loss opportunity. But that's, that's nothing relatively to the humanitarian tool. The international community, actually, since uh, 2014, and we need to talk about this, the international community put $2 billion in reconstructing Gaza, the damage of the 2014 uh, uh, war. Um, I just spoke today with a foreign diplomat that told me that uh, she had just uh, finished writing a report back to the government, reporting back to the taxpayers of this European country that they finished <laughs> reconstruction that they committed to after 2014. And guess what? All over again. Uh, in addition to the reconstruction, I can tell you because I looked into this and I understand Mohammedev's frustrations that not the situation in Gaza has not improved uh, remarkably. But in 2018, when we looked at this, a desalination plant was a dream. And now you have a desalination plant. I mean, it's being built at the moment, but with investments of $250 million, you have, uh, you have more things that we thought of. It does not change the macro indicators of Gaza. It doesn't change the unemployment, doesn't change the GDP, but there are better things that are happening. Whether the international community will go back to doing just the same thing again, you know, again, reconstruction and hoping to transition into development, it's difficult. International aid to the Palestinians has uh, declined by 50% over the last decade. Uh, it's frustrating. Uh, to put money into a place that's being <laughs> wrecked every uh, a few years. Uh, in addition to that, there are other priorities, right? There are other crises worldwide, even in the Middle East, there's Yemen, there's Syria, there are other places. Uh, assistance is, is tied to GDP after COVID, all these countries are gonna have less money available. So there, there are real conversations now, right? There's an urge to rebuild the homes, right? You wanna put these 72,000 people back in a place to live, but, but how much do you do? What do you do? There are opportunities, I think, and we can get into it later because some of the packages that were organized to calm, um, to calm Hamas down and the quiet for quiet also involves some assistance from Qatar that some of it went to development, some of it went to straight into Hamas's hands. And this might be able to be substituted. Uh, but for the bigger bigger things, I just don't see a remarkable shift in from, from the way we've just the international community has done things so far. Um, Thank you, Shira. Um, Michael, back to you. What is the Biden administration doing to support a resolution to the latest round of fighting? How, if at all, has the discourse on Capitol Hill around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict been impacted by the situation in Gaza and Jerusalem? The Biden administration initially took a more hands-off approach and um, did not want to push Israel or Prime Minister Netanyahu into a ceasefire before Israel was ready. Um, you, know, you saw very little, uh, very little public daylight between Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Biden administration on this idea that uh, Israel needed more time to degrade Hamas capabilities, to, to go after rockets, 
um, in particular to strike at the Gaza tunnel system that, that colloquially is called the Metro. Um, and what we've seen in the last couple of days is some um, more indications publicly from President Biden, from Secretary Blinken, and from the administration that the U.S. would like to see this wind down. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the last day, there, uh, there were these reports uh, that President Biden told Prime Minister Netanyahu that he expected uh, de-escalation toward a ceasefire uh, to start happening. Uh, the mm. response from Prime Minister Netanyahu so far, uh, at least publicly, has been effectively uh, to say that Israel still uh, needs time to go after Hamas and, and you know, Israel publicly so far won't commit toward moving toward a ceasefire. Now, you, know, you, you mentioned Capitol Hill. One of the things that's complicating this is that we really are seeing a lot of pressure coming on the Hill from Democrats, uh, some to get to a ceasefire. And, um, you know, there, uh, there's, a, there's a letter being circulated uh, on the House side that, uh, that is going to have a lot of signatures on it calling for a ceasefire. Um, and uh, earlier today, uh, there was a resolution on the Senate side that was being circulated by Bernie Sanders calling for a ceasefire. It remains to be seen how many people are going to sign on to that to that particular resolution, uh, you know, especially given some of the wording in it. But there is this pressure coming from Democrats for a ceasefire. And then beyond that, you have a lot of pressure coming uh, from the progressive wing of the party, not only for a ceasefire, but to really take uh, take a hard look at security assistance to Israel. Um, and in particular, there is controversy over a package uh, uh, for, I think, $735 million that was actually already approved by the Biden administration uh, a couple of weeks ago um, uh, that was for uh, precision-guided munitions uh, for, for Israel. There's now, um, there's now pressure coming, uh, particularly from uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for uh, a joint resolution that is going to call for uh, for that transfer of funds to be halted. Now, um, this is largely a performative measure. Uh, if that was going to be done, it would have had to have been done uh, uh, a couple of days ago at a, at a minimum. Um, you know, that money's already been approved by the administration and, and there's a two-week period and, and I think that two-week period is going to, maybe a 15-day period, and I think that 15-day period is going to expire tomorrow. So, um, so it's done. But, you know, you do have this, effectively performative statement out there that very well may get um, many, many members of Congress to sign on where you have Democratic members of Congress who may be calling uh, to essentially cut off assistance to Israel in the middle of a conflict with a terrorist organization while rockets are still falling on Israel. So, you know, the um, the optics of that are not very good. You can understand how that's going to play in Israel. And you can also understand, given what's happening in the party, why President Biden, who uh, for for a week now has been blocking a UN resolution, uh, not only calling for a ceasefire, but a UN resolution that doesn't even mention Hamas rockets, you can see uh, how it is uh, that he's feeling a lot of a, lo- a lot of pressure. Where on the one hand, you know he is he is making sure that Israel has the space to do what it needs to do. Uh, on the other hand, he's getting this domestic pressure, and um, I think these things are coming to a head. And at the moment, the Israeli government doesn't doesn't seem to be 
playing ball with what the White House wants. And I think that, um, you know, the longer this goes on, I think the more we're going to see some of this tension, you know, bubble, not only bubble more to the surface, but, you know, potentially uh, become a little more open between between the White House and the prime minister. Thank you, Michael. Nimrod, back to you. We know that Secretary of State Tony Blinken has spoken with the foreign ministers of a number of American regional partners, including Jordan, Egypt, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. What role do these states seek in mediating a truce, and what is the status of ceasefire talks? There is an ongoing competition, um, as we know, between uh, Qatar and Turkey on the one hand, supportive of Hamas, um, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, uh, supportive of uh, Fatah and the, the Palestinian Authority. Um, the real question, uh, the, the dilemma for the um, for the UAE, uh, and if you will want to throw in also small Bahrain um, and and Saudi Arabia and maybe Morocco, uh, the dilemma for them is that they have been accused uh, of uh, striking a deal with Israel. Uh, and throwing the Palestinians under the bus. Uh, and uh, there is an incentive there uh, to show that they didn't, that indeed the normalization agreements can be leveraged uh, in favor of the Palestinians. Um, nobody knows how much of an appetite they do have to actually get involved. Uh, there was an idea that was floating that maybe Saudi Arabia and the UAE will replace Qatar. Uh, as the ones who are funding uh, Gaza. And as a result, you have a situation that Hamas depends on uh, those who are hostile to its policies uh, for its lifeline, which may give them some influence over what's happening in Gaza. It has been tested, rejected, um, and what we heard from them was primarily uh, if the administration, uh, the second consideration they have is that they do need uh, to do something that the administration will appreciate. Each one of them has a, has a uh, problem with the administration. Uh, the UAE still has to recover from its uh, role in the Yemen war, issues of human rights. The Saudis, I don't need to elaborate. The Moroccans want to make sure that the Sahara decision um, continues, is not reversed. Each one has something that it wants from Washington and therefore wants to be on Washington's best side. And therefore what we heard for them that if the administration will invite them, and if it invites them not as individuals, but as a group, and the group that they have in mind is of course the so-called Arab Quartet, which is Egypt, Jordan, UAE, and uh, Saudi Arabia. And if they know where is it headed, to the description of the end game. Uh, if that were to happen, uh, they will do it. Uh, we know that in the last uh, few days, the administration have been sending fillers in that direction uh, to see if they are willing to help, uh, each with its own uh, client uh, in encouraging the uh, status quo, uh, those who normalized to talk with Israel uh, and demonstrate that they have some the access and the credibility. Uh, but I think that the bottom line is that we're going to see a rerun of the previous movie whereby uh, Qatar uh, will continue to be the sponsor of Hamas and bring the money in. Uh, uh, Egypt will be the primary uh, mediator 
Obviously, Egypt and Jordan uh, have a completely different set of considerations than the others. They border on the uh, West Bank for Jordan and, and, and Gaza for, for Egypt. What happens there affects their national security, and therefore they are far more alert and proactive. Uh, so it's no accident that Egypt was the first to offer a ceasefire for tomorrow, 6 a.m. local. Um, there are no indications on the Israeli side. I cannot uh, sufficient information on the uh, Hamas side, uh, but on the Israeli side, there's no indication uh, that the IDF um, has instructions uh, to wrap up the operation uh, by tomorrow morning. Okay, Nimrod, I think you froze, but I we got the point of what you were saying. Shira, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has facilitated the transfer of foreign support, notably including Qatari funding to Gaza, which goes to prop up the Hamas regime there. In what ways, if at all, do you expect this conflict to impact Israel's relationship with Hamas? Yeah, so, you know, it's after... 2014, the conflict, it was really interesting that there were few schools of thoughts in Israel. One, I guess three, but the third, I'll start with the third one that's less dominant, although we hear, of course, to uh, destroy Hamas. Um, but this is something that I think most people understand that you can't do without Israel, you know, conquering Gaza again. And this, there's no appetite for it in Israel, despite what the prime minister said today. But I think this is really um it's motivated by political considerations. But the other approaches were saying, okay, what do, what are we doing? Can we get to a long-term understanding with Hamas, knowing that it's it sticks or it, it, it is there. It's been around Gaza, what's been 11 years now? No, more. What are we talking about? Um, Gaza, you know, Hamas has controlled a Gaza Strip for a long time. It's not a state, but it has, uh, it has, um, Anyway, it controls territory and it has institutions and people um, and the interest, or at least what people thought here, that the interests of Hamas and Israel are aligned. Uh, you wanted quiet in the short term. Uh, and there was another school of thought um, that was saying, let's actively try to bring the PA back to Gaza. I don't think Israel made a decision, right? It was more of a, anyone can correct me on this, but there was... Um, convenience, let's say, or uh, alignment of interest of the, the, the Israeli government headed by Benjamin Netanyahu and Hamas uh, to come up with the strategy of quiet for quiet. And when you talk about this, because the international community funding that goes into it, I think people get confused about this, right? If you have a desalination plant that would provide water for the people of Gaza, this is not propping Hamas. It's true. Hamas is there. Uh, it's 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 the sovereign, but you can't collectively punish the, pal the 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 population. On the other hand, when we're talking about cash money, three hundred sixty million dollars, this comes from Qatar. Uh, some of it goes to uh, uh, fuel for the uh, power plant, uh, and some of it goes to um, poor families that Hamas selects. Uh, although it's not really hard to find poor families in Gaza, right? 80% of the population is on food aid. Uh, but the rest of it goes to Hamas salaries, Hamas buildings, uh, a nice depot that they now, now have next to a border crossing that Hamas controls right by Rafah with Egypt. Um, I think this 
has been seen and being there's just more criticism in Israel now about how this has really helped strengthen Hamas, uh, both financially, but also giving them, you know, symbols of sovereignty. Um, there's an interesting quote uh, in a right-wing uh, website when Netanyahu was criticized for this policy of, um, you know, allowing the Qatari money to come. And it's not allowing, it's facilitating. Israel's very active in this. I said this before, those suitcases with, with cash, they don't drive themselves from the airport. The money comes in with in dollars. In Gaza, they use shekels. Someone has to convert this money. It's Israel done. Israel's very active in this. Um, there was a quote that Daniel said when he was criticized by the right for allowing this money to go to Hamas, that he said, it's good for us to strengthen Hamas. And I'm, you know, liber- liberally translating, it's good for us to uh, strengthen Hamas because this would um, uh, reduce the likelihood of a two-state solution. So this has been all on the strategy. I don't see Netanyahu's uh, interests fundamentally changing. He is not going to push for a two-state solution, especially if there's no big pressure from the U.S., which doesn't seem like it's coming. Um, and he does want to stay in power. And despite what he want, what he's saying and vowing to to destroy Hamas, it's very clear that he it's very convenient for him to have Hamas there. Just Hamas weakened, Hamas that doesn't dare to use their weapons. It's not even Hamas without weapons, right? It's Hamas that would think twice before it fires, it shoots, you know, fires rockets on Tel Aviv again. So in a sense, I can tell you that I know how the strategy will differ meaningfully. Maybe it will be less, um, you know, less obvious. Uh, the image of suitcases of, with, with dollars, with millions of dollars, $360 million coming from Qatar to go to Hamas, maybe this will be less obvious, but I don't see, and this you know goes to Nimrod's points before, uh, it would be interesting to see if we can find other countries that have more of Israel's interest in mind and the U.S. Uh, to jump in and help with some needs that are basic needs, like the, the, the fuel, uh, but I don't see the relationship fundamentally changing uh, in the longer run term. I don't know if Nimrod agrees or not, but but it required really like a big shift. And 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 you know, Israel has been very under Netanyahu has been very status quo on and, and everything on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So it's it's hard for me to imagine a change. We have a lot of questions from the audience, so I'm going to ask a couple more and then get to as many as I can. Um, Michael, if you could briefly touch on the Israeli political backdrop to all of this. Uh, you know, currently, Yair Lapid is tasked with trying to form a government. I believe he has until June 2nd to do that. We're seeing indications that Saar, Gidon Saar and, and Naftali Bennett are in conversation with Netanyahu about joining his government, if he's given the opportunity to form one. So how has this conflict impacted the calculations of Prime Minister Netanyahu and opposition leader Yair Lapid? Yeah, it's easy to forget that uh, two weeks ago there was speculation that Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett would have an agreement uh, by the end of the week, and and you know even before Shavuot there'd be uh, there'd be a new government. Obviously, you know that is now completely completely down the tubes. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, before any of this started. You know, once the mandate passed to Yair Lapid, his goal was to try and prevent Lapid from being successful. And he, you know, his strategy for that was um, targeting Natali Bennett and and uh, putting pressure on him that he shouldn't be joining what Netanyahu called a, a left wing government. 
um, and to try and pressure Gideon Saar into the same thing. And Netanyahu didn't appear as if he was going to be successful, but events events have, have overtaken that. Um, and what we first had was Naftali Bennett saying that he uh, could no longer engage in negotiations with Lapid and the Bloc for change uh, while this was while while this was taking place, and that the notion of sitting in a government with Israeli Arab parties uh, while all this was going on, from the fighting in Gaza to uh, to riots in Israeli in, in Israeli cities, uh, that that couldn't happen. Uh, and soon after that, there were reports about Bennett uh, negotiating directly with Netanyahu uh, about what they would do once Lapid's mandate expired, whether that meant that they would uh, try to form a government if the mandate passes to the Knesset, or whether they would support uh, a direct elections bill for prime minister. And now, and then you had reports that Benny Gantz um, was negotiating directly with Netanyahu to form a government where Benny Gantz would be prime minister first. And, you know, we've, uh, while it may be tempting to dismiss those reports, we've, we've seen this, we've seen this movie before, uh, just a year ago. Uh, and then today there are reports that Gideon Sa'ar uh, is also uh, starting to break down and that uh, Netanyahu also offered him to become prime minister first in a rotation. And that because Gideon Sa'ar promised to serve in a government, that he would not serve in a government under Netanyahu, but never said that he wouldn't serve in a government alongside Netanyahu, that perhaps, you know, he will he will break down as well. You know, in general, I always take all these reports with a grain of salt. Israeli political reporters like to engage in gossip and you know, you never know what's what's uh, what's truth and what's fiction. You know, I will say that of those things, it seems uh, less plausible to me that Gideon Saar is negotiating over this sort of stuff than it is that Bennett is negotiating over this sort of stuff, since he, you know, publicly said he was, and also that Gantz isn't, since we've seen, as I said, Gantz do this before. But ultimately, you know, this will still require. Lapid's mandate to expire, President Rivlin to give the mandate to the Knesset, something which has never happened before, and then two weeks, you know, for Netanyahu to put something together. You know, it seems to me that far more likely is a fifth election. Um, you know, I don't see at this point how Lapid is going to do anything with the remainder of his mandate. And, you know, once you go to a fifth election, it still means that Prime Minister Netanyahu is, stays where he is uh, until a fifth election, which would, I guess, at this point be uh, probably in, in late August. Um probably right before the Chagim. Um, and, you know, once that happens, how things shake out after all of this, um, you know, after the fighting, after what's gone on in Israeli, in, between Is- Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs, uh, you know, in Israeli cities, um, you know, what that does to, to turn out, what that does to the constellation of parties, what that does, um, frankly, to, to uh, perhaps most scarily, the vote total for Smotrich and Ben-Gvir, um, you know, my, my sense is it probably helps, helps all of them, um, and probably helps the right more than anything else. And if you go to a fifth election, then it's very possible that prime minister Netanyahu will have his, you know, his 61 seats and, you know, make no mistake, Gideon Saar is one thing, but, uh, if prime minister Netanyahu comes out of there with a block that, you know, will be over 61, if you include Yamina seats, Naftali Bennett is going to, is going to go with that, with that option. So, um, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu, you know, comes out of this. People talk about him as a magician. At the, you know, this time I'm not sure that uh, he's the one who pulled the rabbit out of the hat, but he certainly seems to be. Uh, I think he, he benefits politically from from what's going on. Nimlo, do you want to quickly add anything before I get to audience questions? Uh, yes. Um, um, if I were a betting man, 
uh, I wouldn't put my money on any of the options because over the last two years, um, everything that was impossible materialized. Um, so I would say the following. One, two weeks in Israeli politics is eternity. Uh, so I wouldn't write off uh, Yair Lapid's prospects yet. Two, in terms of the longer term uh, uh, effect, uh, I would I, I see things different than uh, than Michael. Uh, I think that the two guiding principles for me is one, people tend to find reinforcement uh, in in their predisposition in everything that happens. Uh, people on the right, uh, on the extreme right would applaud Netanyahu, people on the left, center left, uh, look at the situation and everything collapsed. I mean, on five fronts, simultaneously, inner city, Israeli Arab, West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem, and now even Southern Lebanon. Uh, that's not exactly Mr. Security. Um, and, and I tend to believe that uh, the likelihood is that if it does affect on the margins, it's not in favor of Netanyahu, but rather as demonstration uh, of his mismanagement, which will not hit him at the hard core, uh, but I think might erode support on the margin, the softer margins. Uh, so, but, you know, again, no money on any option. So um, we have a couple of questions from the audience that I think serve nicely as follow-ups to what we're talking about now. So Avner Porat asks, now that Netanyahu achieved his goal of preventing a Lapid-Bennett government, if that is what's happened here, what are his political objectives in preventing a ceasefire? And then Anne Hoffman asks, does the current mess strengthen or weaken Netanyahu? Who would like to try that. I, I will just add a little bit to what I said, because I, I think I basically addressed the question before it was asked, um, uh, but, but the ceasefire. Um, I don't think that Netanyahu has a... First of all, um, the, the, the crisis, as Michael said, already uh, uh, prevented the emergence of what was on the verge of happening, uh, which is the Lapid-Bennett uh, uh, broad coalition. Uh, will it re-emerge in one form or another? Who knows? Uh, less likely, no doubt, but not completely impossible. But the ceasefire. I don't think that Netanyahu at the moment um, has uh, any interest in postponing uh, the ceasefire. Um, I think that the only possible uh, motive um, is to not appear as yielding to outside diktat. Um, if I can humbly suggest that it was a mistake to make public uh, the president's statement today, uh, which is basically said, stop now. Uh, the, the use of the term today uh, is reminiscent of previous uh, occasions when Reagan did it uh, and Bush did it. Um, it's very difficult for the prime minister uh, to walk into the room and say, look, the Americans want, let's wrap it up. Uh, he will need another 24 hours, 36 hours in order just to show 
uh, that he's his own man. Uh, no, I don't think he takes lightly the American position, uh, but he cannot cave to it or appear to be caving to it publicly in this politically sensitive moment. Uh, Maura Resnick asks, I understand that the Israeli media is not showing images of the devastation in Gaza. And of course, we in the U.S. are seeing this all the time. And it is turning more public opinion against Israel. If these images were shown, would would they influence Israeli public opinion about the wisdom of this latest Israeli military assault? Shira, do you want to? Sure. Listen, I... And hi, Maura. I, you know, we don't know, but I think Israelis can find resources that will show them the damage in Gaza. They are exposed to international media. They're exposed to Twitter. I think the dominant narrative in Israel, and we've seen this before in previous rounds of fighting, at least in the beginning of operations, that there is a sentiment and, and largely, you know, for a good reason, it's asymmetric warfare. Uh, we didn't start this fight from an Israeli perspective, right? That's their their narrative. We didn't start this fight. Um, there are civilians everywhere, uh, uh, headquarters, uh, 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 weapon uh, pr- production facilities, uh, intelligence facilities are all embedded within civilians. Uh, the IDF is, and this I'll tell you, we did look at this. We also look at this lessons learned for the U.S. military at RAND and for, uh, for the U.S. Army and or, uh, on urban warfare. So the IDF does go way and beyond to warn civilians. And sometimes it takes three hours to evacuate a building because they inform the owner of the building <laughs> that they're going to ruin the building so they should get everyone out. So in the Israeli mindset, that's enough. Um, it doesn't take you to the next level of like, okay, those people, you tell them to get out of the house and that's great. They're not, they don't die for the most part, right? But where will they go? <laughs> where, will, where will they live now for the next six years? Um, uh, you know, we've seen it also in other surveys and polls. There's less compassion than you would think for the other life. And there's a, a sentiment also in Israel that, you know, Hamas won the elections, and which is completely wrong, right? It won plurality in <laughs> one election that happened a long time ago, and then uh, never again, right? They 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 forcefully uh, controlled the population. But there's there's this idea that oh, uh, the population of Gaza they support uh, the Hamas regime, and therefore, what can you do? Um, it does change often that we see the narrative changes after uh, operations get lengthened. And if you have something that's really catastrophic, maybe you remember Farkana in uh, 2006 in Lebanon, if you have one big incident, then I think sort of the mind shift changes. Uh, but for the most part, I think uh, I think most Israelis sleep well at night. I don't know what Nimrod thinks. May I add something to this? Please. Um, I think it is relevant to the uh, narrative uh, struggle that is going on of who won. Uh, and everybody on, on both sides is, uh, is uh, um, counting scores. Um, and um, at the moment, when, when, when the, the, I, I would say that the major narrative is that Hamas won, not the war, but strategically, um, because uh, because of the lack of images, um, 
we see all the time IDF spokesmen, uh, other PR government officials trying to convince the public that we hit them hard. But there is no evidence. There's no visible evidence. So people take seriously uh, the story of the so-called metro, uh, that Israel came up with a technology, uh, a, a major strategic surprise that destroyed the underground facilities, which were of, uh, of uh, highest strategic importance for Hamas. But the sense that Hamas, um, there is even a sense that Hamas ignited Jerusalem, which it did not. But the fact that he fired at Jerusalem and forced the evacuation of the Knesset and forced uh, stopping, uh, closing down Ben-Gurion Airport uh, and fired at Tel Aviv and, uh, and elsewhere, uh, there is a sense and ignited the West Bank and Israeli Arabs. And uh, Shira mentioned it, and, and she did mention one more thing that was a, 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 the first time ever since 1936 that you had a strike that started, that, that covered the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Israel with the Arab uh, uh, of, of uh, uh, sympathy identifying with, with the Gaza suffering and so on, uh, but across the Green Line. Uh, I mean, we, ma we managed to erase the Green Line for all practical purposes, God help us. So uh, the lack of images does not support the government claim or the IDF claim that we hit them hard and that they are on their knees, okay? So in the, in the, in the fight for, for, for narrative, I think it, 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 it would have affected public opinion. We have time for maybe a couple more questions. Um, we have one from Mohammed Samhuri. The continued lack of a comprehensive policy solution to the Gaza question has inevitably led to the renewed violence between Hamas and Israel. In your view, what prevents a permanent settlement to the Gaza problem and what should be done to once and for all? Uh, Michael, do you want to start and then we'll move it around? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I'll start briefly. Um, I mean, a, a permanent solution to Gaza is not, this is not an around the corner, around the corner thing, right? It's very complicated and requires lots of things. And, um, you know, it, it requires, first of all, Hamas being, being undermined politically um, and the PA being boosted. It requires, you know, at some point, uh, Palestinian reconciliation and bringing the Palestinian Authority back to Gaza, not only manning the border crossings, but uh, but also actually taking control of governance uh, of governance in Gaza. Um, it requires over time Hamas not only renouncing violence but over time disarming. Um, it requires, you know, Shira outlined before all of the you know, enormous burdens that there are going to be to rebuilding Gaza. But it requires a huge international community effort to rebuild Gaza in a sustainable way, in a way, and in a way that doesn't just uh, funnel aid, funnel aid to Hamas. Um, you know, this is this is complicated. It requires it requires lots, and it's just there is no simple military solution to this. And um, you know, while there obviously, when you're talking about rockets raining down on Israelis, there has to be a military component. Ultimately, as with any other similar situation, it will only ultimately be resolved politically, and nobody seems to have an appetite for doing that. 
not Hamas, not the PA, not Israel, not the US. Um, and until everybody gets their acts together and starts to think about what a long-term strategy is, not just short-term military tactics to prevent rockets, but a long-term strategy to transform the fundamental situation, I guarantee you at some point in the next few years, the three of us will be back on an Israel Policy Forum webinar talking about the exact same situation, you know, with kind of eerily similar factors and eerily similar diagnoses and eerily similar prescriptions about uh, what has to happen next. I'm, I'm sure that Shira and Nimrod have, have you know, stuff to add to this. So please, uh, Shira and then Nimrod, uh, if you want to weigh in, because we're getting to the top of the hour. So just briefly. Shira wants me to go first. Okay. Um, I will be less uh, polite than, uh, I, I'm an Israeli, I can afford to be less polite than Michael. Um, and I will say uh, that as long as Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, 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 insist on separating the West Bank from the Gaza Strip uh, for primarily one reason, uh, in order to make to deprive the Palestinian Authority uh, of the ability to claim that there is a partner for peace. Um, the, 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 the argument, how can I negotiate with you when you don't control half of your people, is something that he nourishes. Uh, and as Michael said, has been strengthening Hamas and weakening the Palestinian Authority in order to avoid a two-state solution. Uh, Gaza as such will not be resolved, resolved uh, outside of the two-state solution. But we could have had a completely different situation in Gaza uh, should the prime minister not have blocked uh, the Egyptian Sinwar initiative I alluded to uh, earlier. Uh, we don't know if it would have succeeded or not. But what we did explain to the prime minister, that even if it fails, if it succeeds, then of course life in Gaza and life for the Israelis who live around Gaza would be completely different for a long time to come. But even if it fails, there is no price tag for Israel for trying. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the security gap or the capability gap between Israel and Hamas will not uh, wide uh, uh, narrow uh, if we give it a year, a year and a half of, of that strategy to try to evolve. And better yet, if you try a political solution, not a military one, you're likely to have far more supportive Israeli audience, regional audience, and international audience once you are forced to use force. So there is no downside for Israel for trying, except for the risk that down the road, you will have to negotiate a two-state agreement. Shira, any final thoughts before I wrap up? Um, no, I, I mean, I 100% agree with Nimrod, but I think it's going to be a challenge that we don't know. It's hard to imagine a future of not Netanyahu being led. There's no question that a political horizon strengthening um, your uh, security coordination partner and your COVID coordination partner and your, your other partner, just not a partner that you give them political horizon. This is not going to, nothing good is going to happen. But I think, you know, we also have to be realistic. Um, Hamas is an organization, it's there to stay. And maybe the long-standing approach to, to Hamas, uh, you, you set these conditions and red lines and then you sort of have to work with them. Uh, it's not for now, but I think, 
Hamas is not going to disappear, even if we strengthen the PA and give the PA a, a state at the moment. It's 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 a fundamental part. It's a it's a it's a pillar of Palestinian leadership. We have to take it seriously and think of how to deal with Hamas um, jointly with the PA and separately. Um, we don't have time to go into this. There are some ideas, uh, but of course, there's no political will here to to listen. Well, it sounds to me like this could be the topic for a future webinar to talk about some of those ideas. But in the meantime, I want to, first of all, thank everyone for joining us. I want to thank our supporters who are on today's call because your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. Thank you all so much for joining us. I really want to thank particularly Shira and Nimrod. I know you've had a very long day and I just would note it's after one in the morning Israel time. So thank you for this. And I want to remind everyone on our call to register online at ipf.li forward slash to June for our upcoming Realistic Reset program. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column by Michael Coplo in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing. Until then, thanks so much again for tuning in and we will see you soon. And Laila uh, Tov Thank you, everybody. And let's hope for better days ahead. Thank you so much. <laughs>